Welcome to Soil to Soil, a podcast connecting the dots in the life cycle of clothing and material culture, brought to you by Fibershed. Each episode offers a look at how and why our community is working to cultivate fiber and dye systems that build soil and protect the health of our biosphere. In this episode, we're diving deep into how healthy soil and healthy relationships are at the core of regional economic development. I'm Jess Daniels, and I'm joined today by Nikki Silvestri, who founded Soil and Shadow, a project development firm that designs human and environmental strategies. As the former executive director of People's Grocery and Green for All, Nikki has built and strengthened social equity for underrepresented populations in food systems, social services, public health, climate solutions, and economic development. We start this conversation with some of the key points from Designing the Future, a report that Fibershed released in 2018, co-authored by Nikki Silvestri, Beth Rapps, Osai Endelin, and Rebecca Burgess. And in that report, they share how soil-to-soil fiber systems create opportunities to simultaneously enhance natural resource management, build regional economies, and bridge cultural divides. Nikki talks us through how soil can be a connector between urban and rural communities, as well as a lens for our own personal growth. And if that sounds like a lot to cover, I really encourage you to stay tuned, because Nikki weaves these elements together so beautifully and powerfully. She illustrates how when we keep soil at the heart of what we do, whether that's product development or community development, whether that's agricultural cultivation or fiber production, we can solve for so many issues at once and really design a better future. Well, thanks so much, Nikki, for joining me this morning. Um, I wanted to jump right into the Designing the Future paper that you created about pathways through fiber sheds to natural resource management, regional economic development, and bridging cultural divides. There's this great quote in the introduction that the point of the paper is not that anything is possible, but that much more is possible than we realize. What are some of those possibilities that emerged through your research for designing the future? Mm, That's such a good question. And I think I also just want to say it's really, it's great to be here. You know, the possibilities that emerge through designing the future, I think context is important when it comes to that. That bigger picture around the fact that it's possible to turn a profit in terms of economic development while doing something that regenerates natural resources is not necessarily a revolutionary idea, but I think when it comes down to brass tacks and when you actually look at rural communities and you look at the kind of conflicts that come up when people do try to engage environmentalists or different types of communities sometimes around making money by regenerating resources, things can get a little tense and a little hairy. And so one of the biggest possibilities and points of the paper is that design is the way through any problem that you see. If it looks like two things can't exist at the same time, it's likely a design problem. And go ahead and let's sit down and let's put our heads together and let's see if we can do all of these things at the same time. One of my favorite parts of the paper was talking to the executive director of the Biomimicry Institute, who was talking about new materials and how there are these materials that can replace plastics and the different types of synthetic fibers that are used in clothing, and that they are really, really good for the natural environment when it comes to how to grow them. And so when we think about new patents like that, 
that's totally a possibility that's incredibly exciting. If we had a new material that was grown from a crop right now that's just considered a weed and there's no market from it, and then that growing that one crop could revitalize an entire community. These are the types of hidden opportunities that just require a bit of thinking cap. And that design piece seems key, you know, when focusing on those new technologies to really take a holistic lens. And I know you, you brought together uh, quite a stakeholder group to work on designing the future, um, as well as uh, bringing together, you know, over 40 interviews with a real range of people Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the people you got to know through the interviews and the research, as well as about your your co-authors and collaborators? I'll start with the co-authors and collaborators because the the interviewees came out of the collaborators. Rebecca Burgess, who's the executive director of Fibershed, she's one of my favorite people of all time, as are you, Jess, and your whole crew. And I, I was deeply and still am deeply inspired by Fibershed's assertion that there is a way to have carbon negative clothing and that there's a way to protect artisans and actual craftsmanship and livelihoods in the pursuit of clothing that is both beautiful and environmentally sound. So when Rebecca and I put our heads together and started dreaming and scheming about this paper, it was really looking at that multi-stakeholder interdisciplinary nature of what regional economic development could look like if you had all parties at the table. And so then that extended into a conversation of what does all parties look like? And there's just a wide swath of, of individuals. And the paper spanned a couple of different iterations. There was one iteration that was really grounded in thought leaders and folks who think at the 30,000 foot level about big problems. And then we did a second round of interviews that was really grounded in practitioners on the ground and trying to ensure that those individuals who are at the intersection of social equity and rural economic development and new technologies and regenerative agriculture are lifted up because that was that was another thing when it comes to the point of the paper is that people who are at intersections like that do exist they're not actually that rare we are used to simple narratives and we're used to trying to divvy people up into easy to understand categories when we talk about groups of people and culture in the mainstream but when you actually sit down with a person and talk to a person, you find out that they're incredibly multifaceted and have really beautiful opinions and worldviews. When I think of a couple of people, there was a gentleman we interviewed who is an ecosystems manager and he does forestry work. And he is incredibly sophisticated when it comes to the way that he manages his forests and when you need to cut down a lot of trees because it's an invasive species, it can look one way to the community because it just looks like you're cutting down a bunch of trees. But if you're actually managing an ecosystem and looking at the flora and the fauna and the way that that ecosystem is trying to grow and looking at the different invasive species that are preventing that flow, that brings up a whole different conversation. 
We talked to different food advocates who were talking about not just the textiles that come out of soil, but the food that comes out of soil. And sometimes there's a crossover between textiles and foods. The last one that I'll bring up is a dear friend of mine, uh, Leah Endress, who is the president and CEO of Nation Builder, which is a tech company that looks at software that helps build campaigns and work as a CRM system for folks. And she had these beautiful descriptions of what building community actually looks like in practice, because that's what Nation Builder is all about and what it takes to have multi-stakeholder groups sit down together and actually communicate in a way that is thoughtful, which sounds simple, but can be rocket science in practice. And I want to say that likewise, uh, you are such uh, a key person in our community for holding these kind of complicated intersectional narratives. Um, I'm so grateful to have your work and you joining me today. Um, and one of the things I love and I see as a theme throughout your work is um, centering the soil and holding that as this um, kind of pivot point for all of those different pieces. Uh, and obviously this podcast is called Soil to Soil, so it's a, a guiding frame for our work with Fibershed. And your business is called Soil and Shadow. And so in your opinion and through your work, why is focusing on soil significant, even beyond obvious points of connection, like it's the foundation of agriculture? I like how that's, that's the obvious. I mean, obviously soil is, <laughs> soil is how we grow everything, yes. I love soil so much. And I did not have this love affair with soil when I was working on food insecurity in inner city communities, which I think is interesting. I was really focused on food as a vehicle to economic development and economic empowerment for people of color and low-income communities when I was in my food systems work. It was really when I started looking at the carbon cycle and trying to connect the dots around my climate activism work and looking at how to draw down carbon and not just reduce carbon emissions, that soil really came up. And so just looking at the carbon holding capacity of soil made me just curious about what else soil could do. And then learning about microbes and going down the rabbit hole of the soil microbiome and nutrient density and working with a regenerative ranch and starting to really dig my hands in the soil and look at how animals with hooves are actually really important and not just killing our carbon cycle. All of those things together inspired a sense of awe and wonder with soil. And just looking at how I'd spent my entire career focusing on these specific issues when it came to environmentalism. And then looking at how building healthy soil was actually really difficult and how you can't do it if you're degrading any other system. So it actually is a focal point that one can focus on that isn't a silver bullet just because soil is humbling. And it was really that humbling nature of it that started making me think about the metaphor of soil and the metaphor of complexity and how soil in some ways, the more complex the relationships of the organisms and the minerals in the soil, the healthier it is. And complex doesn't mean health. Complex doesn't mean good. Complex doesn't mean quote unquote positive. 
<laughs> there's a lot of death and mayhem and chaos in soil that and that death and mayhem and chaos is buoyed by really symbiotic relationships and an incredible amount of exchange and collaboration. And so I started looking at human communities through that lens and what it would look like to increase the complexity of relationship within human communities and build social fertility using soil fertility as a guidepost. And it thinking that way and starting to incorporate that into the work in our business just dramatically increased the results for our clients. And so that's one way that I focus on soil and one way that it inspires me. And that's so rich. And that soil fertility and um, soil as a connector is present throughout Designing the Future um, and really as a, a lens for uh, you know, designing and organizing within a strategic geography, within a fiber shed, that when we regenerate soil, uh, we can also regenerate human relationships and economies. Um, so can you share an example of how that kind of shed thinking and uh, soil health focus actually develops the human relationship side and that social fertility that you described? There was one example, Inez, in the paper. She runs a rural economic development organization, and she was talking about how when they go into rural communities and they do round tables and just talk to people about what they would like to see and what they would like to do. There was a funny story she told me, I can't remember if it made it into the paper about how they learned how to not do meetings on Fridays because Fridays was football night. And it was really funny to me when she said that, but she said, you know, that's a real it's a real thing when you're out in a rural community. Your, your local football team that at the high school is what you rally around on a weekly basis during football season. It is sacred. It is not to be messed with. And it really, when it comes to shed thinking, I, the, the shed concept to me just feels regional, right? And the cultural elements that bind a region together. So let's say there's a, a rural community that is struggling to come to consensus or agreement about a particular way to develop that community. That conversation is going to be made so much easier if there's farmers that need to be at the table and local politicians that need to be at the table and then the PTA that needs to be at the table, but they all go to Friday night football starting with that Friday night football place of togetherness is a way to then take that same sense of collaboration and start talking about soil. So I feel like shed thinking in a lot of ways is just what, what binds us together and looking at the starting point, using what binds us together as a starting point to talk about soil regeneration, make sure that relationship is there. Because if we're in good relationships socially, it's much easier to conceive of how to have a good, solid relationship with the soil. Which, you know, sounds, sounds straightforward when, <laughs> when we talk about it, but there's, there's so much that goes into that. It can be such a powerful force to build those social relationships. I'd love to hear more about, you mentioned earlier, uh, your work in food systems and urban food insecurity uh, and that... It, 
you know, now your perspective is so informed by soil health and soil regeneration and that kind of shifting perspective. Um, when you think now about uh, soil carbon sequestration, um, how do you see that connected to building healthy urban and rural communities? So the paper you're referencing is the Healthy Soils, Healthy Communities that we did in partnership with Food First and the Carbon Cycle Institute. And that paper was so incredible. It was interviewed, we interviewed 12 folk across the state of California who operate at the intersection of social justice and agriculture and just checked in about soil and carbon sequestration and how the two fit into their work. One of the most beautiful and interesting things that came out of that exploration is that there is a big question amongst folks who look at the widgets and the numbers around carbon sequestration of what is the capacity or the point of trying to focus on soil carbon sequestration in urban communities considering that there's not these large swaths of land where you can just spread a bunch of compost or herd a bunch of cows and actually draw down a ton of carbon. But what we found when we were interviewing urban folk who do urban farming and things of that like is that there's a, there's a bigger and a deeper inquiry around community development and the democratic process that if 75% of us are gonna be living in urban communities, then most of us are not gonna have a lived experience of what it's like to manage natural resources on a large scale. And there's gonna be fewer and fewer people who are making decisions about how to manage entire states who have no grounding whatsoever. Or if they do, that small cadre of people are gonna have so much power concentrated because the rest of us just don't know what to do. And so urban agriculture and urban communities, having soil carbon sequestration and demonstration projects in urban communities ensures that the democratic process is protected around how we make decisions. It ensures that those of us who live in cities who may not be touching soil every day, the way that folk in rural communities do, have, an, have some context so that when bills come down the pike that are meant to support us with making, especially in California, really sophisticated decisions around natural resource management and water and what to do. Do we burn things or do, do we compost them? Do we compost them through a digester? Is there another way to do it? I mean, these are really, these are big questions. And so ensuring that urban communities have enough context to participate in a way that makes sense is the role of urban soil carbon sequestration. And it's incredibly important. Um, just on that note on compost, I know that I've seen through some of the talks you give and the writing you've done around compost as a metaphor. And, you know, we have this opportunity to, to work with materials and keep that life cycle circular. Uh, I'd love to hear more about what you talk about with an inner compost process. Mm, yeah, one of my favorite things to talk about now. The inciting question for me is how does soil and nature deal with loss and grief and fear and things that need to be folded in, 
turned into the soil, transformed from one form to another. And composting felt like a way to support people with doing shadow work in a way of just looking at what's hidden, looking at the things that are uncomfortable, the things that we keep in the dark. The metaphor that I use with folks in my coaching work is around the mesophilic beginning process when you experience short-term and long-term trauma. Just imagine that there's a place within you that you throw it into the compost pit, in your internal compost pit, and you keep adding to it and you keep adding to it. And when it comes to the browns and the greens that go into making a compost pit actually functional, the carbony brown part is the part that is long-term trauma, collective trauma. And the greens and the nitrogen is the short-term, the things that can become really nasty pretty quickly, those, those ones that are at the top of the pile, but they are really important to the process. And then the thermophilic process, when it starts to get hot, is when you stop batting things, when you're at the peak of your heat, maybe even literally, because that's how people feel when they get angry. And then that peak heat is when you add air, which is time, and water, which is care, and make sure that you have enough time and care in your compost process to let it churn and turn and become something else when you're at your peak heat and your peak discomfort. And the bigger your compost pile, the more help you need turning it, right? You may need supportive friends or therapists, et cetera. And then the curing process, that last phase when it starts to cool down is when new bacteria, also known as new thoughts, new actions are possible. And the final sorting phase and sifting phase is when there's still chunks in there, there's still carbony bits, woody bits, pieces of collective trauma that didn't fully get transformed and processed, but they're now inoculated with all this good bacteria and fungus, which for us internally is they're inoculated. Those memories of collective trauma are now inoculated with healing. So they become future fodder for future healing processes instead of things that pull us down. And that's, that's a very brief description of like a all day workshop. So it may not make sense, but that's that those are a few pieces of how I use the inner composting metaphor. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I can see how that would be such a, uh, a rich and in-depth process and it provides such an incredible illustration of regeneration, you know, on several levels there as you're describing it. Uh, regeneration seems like it's such a popular term right now with regenerative agriculture in food systems and fiber systems and um, a lot of hope around climate change. One thing we've been talking about at Fibershed is, is the question of what are we regenerating? And I think the Designing the Future paper illustrates some of those potentials really well. As the introduction states, regenerating economies, ecologies, and human relationships. And so I'd love to hear more from your work and your perspective. What do you seek to regenerate and what practices contribute to that regeneration? Mm. What do I seek to regenerate? That's such a good question. Over the arc of my career, I've sought to regenerate our systems. 
our economic systems, our financial systems, our agricultural and ranching systems. But increasingly, I'm seeing individuals and organizations as the soil of all of those systems. The systems grow out of us. We create systems in our image. And I can try to change systems all I want to, but there's going to be a bunch of people <laughs> that are going to come behind me and do, do all these tweaks. So I know working on systems is still really important. I'm just finding that it's less my role now. More of my role and what I seek to regenerate is people and the things that people create. And so working with the individuals that are in regenerative agriculture and ranching and ecological advocacy. Like I, I use ecology in a broad swath because there's so many people who work to regenerate ecology, even if they don't, even if they may not use that term, they do that work. And so I seek to regenerate our ability to have hope, to be healthy, to on a really fundamental level, understand that if we are not walking, talking examples of regeneration ourselves, then we are going to build the exact opposite of what we are trying to build. We cannot regenerate anything if we are depleted, if we're treating ourselves like monocultures, if we're extracting our own labor by not making money, by not really caring for ourselves and investing in ourselves. But that is a process. It requires us to face that within us, which makes us most afraid. It requires active leadership development. It requires the ability to speak the truth with nonviolence and grace. It requires a high level of sophistication in relationships. It requires knowing how to do diversity and inclusion work. It, it just, it requires this multifaceted set of skills. And so that's what I seek to teach and all of that together creates regenerative people. Mm. Regenerative people. When I was looking at the Soil and Shadow website and tuning into some of that diversity and inclusion work that you've been doing, you have some wonderful um, videos and, and video chats that you have hosted on your site. Um, I was struck by a quote that's at the bottom of the page, learn from the victories of the paradigm failure. Can you share a little bit more about that particular quote and how it underscores your work? Yeah, I love how you picked up on that. That quote is by Charles Bates, who had a consulting firm called Tenth Dot Transformations, and his, his wife still runs it after his passing. And so much of his work was about intertwining yoga, specifically the Himalayan sage tradition with gestalt organizational development and different modalities. And so paradigm failure is just any of our beliefs, stories, or paradigms that used to work that no longer work. And we're in a huge paradigm failure in this country right now when it comes to governance and how governance is run. Congress is in a paradigm failure. <laughs> it's just paradigm failure all over the place, all over the place. But when the way that we experience it, I think, as individuals is that when we have beliefs or worldviews that 
we get new information about and realize that those beliefs or worldviews no longer apply or that we need to change them to meet whatever truth we are interfacing with in that moment. And all of us at one point or another get new information that disproves something that we hold as a core belief to our identity and reject it simply because we can't conceive of changing that belief because it's so fundamental to who we are. All of us have done that. And so this quote is just acknowledging that paradigm failure exists. It happens all the time. It happens every day. What was the truth this morning will start to become different in the afternoon and by the evening will become a lie. And so knowing that that process is just how evolution happens, how evolution of thought happens, we can start to see paradigm failure as a victory and knowing we start to seek it. And that's really the core of the leadership development work I do and the core of the work around regenerative people is that we can start to seek paradigm failure, know that it's coming, rejoice in it and learn from it instead of being scared and trying to reinforce our beliefs all over the place so that then when we get new information, we reject it. And one of the reasons this feels really vitally important and why I feel like it's at the bottom of the Soil and Shadow website in particular, I was at a presentation recently with Dr. Chris Nichols, who's a soil microbiologist, and she talked about how when she started her degree in soil microbiology, there was the assumption that um, this, the scientist community knew about 10% of the organisms that were in soil. And she said 10 to 12 years later, when she finished her degree, they were clear that they knew about 1% or 0.1% or something like that of the organisms that were in the soil. So she had this joke about how she paid all this money to get 90 times stupider or something like that. And the room laughed, but that's one of the reasons why I'm so inspired by soil and why I call it humbling and why I'm just in awe of soil. Because there's just, there's so much abundance and so much life in soil that it, it's a paradigm failure in and of itself. Right when I think I understand how this microbe interacts with that microbe and thus how to mediate or interact with that relationship to produce a certain result in what I'm growing, lo, lo and behold, there's like five other organisms that interact in that whole thing. And what I tried to do to manipulate that relationship doesn't actually work. And in fact, starts to kill all the things that I just tried to create. And so really engaging and interacting with soil will create a sense of ongoing humility. And I feel like that sense of ongoing humility is the, the foundation to being regenerative because then you approach the world with curiosity instead of outcomes. Absolutely. Wow. Um, that sense of humility also seems like, you know, translating it from the soil into those social relationships. There seems like so much we can learn there about, um, you know, one theme of the paper, which is bridging cultural divides and how we approach one another. Um, can you say more about that aspect and how that, I guess, whether to use the metaphor of composting or you're looking at it as this paradigm failure, but kind of stripping back what we think we know about people you know, maybe within our fiber shed, within kind of the farther reaches of our 
community uh, to span those cultural divides. When it comes to bridging cultural divides, one of the things that felt so important to me is acknowledging what rural communities actually look like and where so much of the labor in rural communities actually comes from. And many of those people are people of color. They're immigrants. As cities become more expensive, more and more people are moving into these peri-urban communities where there's a lot of surrounding agriculture, but they're not quite rural. They're in between. And many of the people who are moving out of the cities are people of color. And so culturally, I think just understanding that the, the way that rural and peri-urban culture flows and is invested in is going to be a huge conversation moving forward. And the bridging cultural divides was just acknowledging from the outset that rural America can be really scary for a lot of people. And not just because the people who live in rural America are scary. Like that's not actually what I'm trying to say. It's, it's scary when there's huge, huge, huge plots of land that are separated by sometimes an hour or more. It's just isolating. Isolation can be scary. Not knowing if you're going to be able to get the resources you need when you need them is frightening. And so going into areas that have been pretty isolated and starting to mix people together, if that's done thoughtfully and if that's done intentionally, we can create, we can basically leapfrog what's happened in urban communities, the segregation, the, the infighting, the living on top of each other, but, feel, but ignoring one another. That, all of that happens in urban communities, but we have an opportunity to actually curate really connected communities in rural and peri-urban environments. And so it was just looking at how economic development in rural communities can do that intentionally. Can you just share with us where we can find your work and follow along and learn more about what you're up to? Yeah. Um, you can find out more about the coaching work at NikkiSylvestri.com and the diversity and inclusion and other types of projects that are soil health advocacy at soilandshadow.com. And I'm on Instagram at Nikki underscore Silvestri. Thank you so much. I will be sure to link those in the show notes and really appreciate your time today. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, it was great to be here. Yeah, thanks. Love is back in a trailer. Turn one way and it goes the other. Thanks for listening to the fifth episode of Soil to Soil, a podcast by Fibershed, which is a nonprofit organization based in Northern California. We invite you to learn more about our work and the topics described here by visiting www.fibershed.org. And you can find show notes for this podcast at fibershed.com podcast. You can also find our archive of past episodes, including more topics in the soil to soil life cycle of clothing and material culture. If you're enjoying listening to this podcast, it would mean so much if you could leave us a review on iTunes and you can do that through rating as well as leaving a comment. And if you have feedback about the episode, what you just heard today or other uh, future ideas or anything of the sort, please go ahead and email us at podcast at fibershed.com. On our website, you can also join our newsletter to hear the latest updates on our work, including research like Designing the Future. You can also connect with us on social media 
like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for Fibershed. You can find more of Nikki Silvestri's work at nikkisilvestri.com as well as soilandshadow.com. This show is produced by Fibershed with support from Whetstone Media and music by Aaron Harris, a member of Northern California Fibershed. Love is-